five minutes on David Jones, so here we go. Um, I did want to include something about David Jones because he is a poet that is, is regularly overlooked and it, I just couldn't get him in an hour into the, into the timetable. So what I'm, the approach I'm going to take here very briefly is just to try and sort of like coalesce some things which I've mentioned earlier. And I was struck um, by Jean's comment earlier about Rosenberg that Rosenberg was, is often seen as on the outside. And I think to a degree you could say that for David Jones. Um, on that mind map, I did, if you remember uh, yesterday I showed you a sort of relationship map between who knew what and related, and you will see Jones is on there, but he is on the periphery. He really wasn't part of the literary circle, uh, certainly at the time of the war. He is a private like uh, Gurney and uh, Rosenberg, um, and it's really only later on that his reputation uh, emerges. In fact, it's surprising to know I don't believe he meets um, Sassoon until the 1960s, even though they were in the um, same regiment, and uh, even then it wasn't a particularly favourable meeting. Now, I tried to do the analysis of the anthologies for uh, David Jones, and as you can see, it didn't prove very successful. Um, this is not surprising for many reasons. First of all, that he doesn't actually, as you will see, uh, his major study doesn't come out till the 30s, or his major poem. Um, but I think it would be safe to say that Jones, despite uh, a strong reputation uh, when it was published, is not anthologised and to a certain degree was not studied that much. Now, there was a famous book that came out in the 60s from John Johnston, um, an American scholar, uh, and it said that he really sort of brought Jones to the fore. Um, I'm not certain if that is true, but it is, it is the case that as you read through, uh, Jones is kind of kicked about by the, the critics. People sort of touch on him, or in the case of Martin Stevens, which a book I don't think we've mentioned yet, The Price of Pity, he's really only debated as a reaction to Paul Fussell's um, criticism of Jones, who, who had some strong words to say. So if you do want to go away and read them, you could start more recently. Adrian Poole has done a, an article on David Jones in the Cambridge Companion to the poetry of the First World War. You may want to work back to John Silken's Out of Battle, who picks up on Johnston's arguments in the 1960s. Now, why... Why does Jones not prove popular, or has he not proved popular in anthology? Well, the answer is fairly obvious, because what he wrote just doesn't lend itself to anthologies. This is not a short poem, um, as we will see. But that said, modern anthologists, and I know Simon, Simon's here. Simon, in your book, you, you included, are, are tending to include extracts from one of the parts of, um, in parenthesis, which we will come on to. I think the other reason why, when, you, when we come across in parenthesis, it's not quite like anything else you've ever seen, uh, particularly when we, we've looked at the war poetry. Even if we took a T. Hume poem, this is really going beyond that. Um, so, in many ways, he is on the outside, but hopefully let's bring him into the fold a bit. So, if you don't know uh, anything about David Jones, and I, I... Oh, sorry, the picture has gone over the text... I do love the picture, though. It's, he really looks so young, so innocent, and so that, that, that coat is just hanging off him, isn't it? Uh, he's born in 1895 in Brockley in Kent, son of James and Alice Jones. His father was a printer by profession, which is important for his later career. Stu studied at the Camberwell School of Art from 1910 to 1914, which I think is very resonant with what we heard about Rosenberg. He is an artist, and he brings an artist's eye to the war. Um, when war was declared, he tried to enlist in the Artist Rifles. Now, we've heard a lot about the Artist Rifles, uh, Thomas and Owen's regiment. It wasn't people sitting around with easels and paint pots. It was a volunteer organisation that then, once you'd sort of gone through it, you would often be allocated, in, in uh, Owen's case, to the Manchester Regiment uh, and Thomas elsewhere. Um, and actually, it does 
its tortured history becomes part of the SAS, which is kind of one of those lost facts of military history. Um, he did actually join up on the 15th London Welsh Battalion, the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. Royal Welsh Fusiliers, we've heard again and again, was Gray's and Sassoon's regiment, of course. But this was a new battalion formed of men, Welshmen living in London, native Londoners, and so on. And one of the things that comes out in Owen Jones's uh, poetry and his studies is this idea of Anglo-Welsh, bringing together of England and Welsh. And actually, someone once remarked, and I think it's very apt to you, that what he was interested in was the hyphen between the words Anglo and Welsh, what bridges the two. Um, His battalion embarked for France in 1915 and was sent to the Somme for the big push in 1916, actually relieved Sassoon's um, uh, battalion. Uh, And then he took part in, again, which we've heard before, the famous attack on the Metz Wood on the 10th to the 11th of July, where the glorious Welsh dragon now sits. He was wounded and returned to England, but still in the ranks, he went back and fights at Ypres near Bosinghay, Pilkham Ridge, Langemark and Passchendaele, contracted trench fever, returned um, to the home front in February 1918 and saw the rest of the war out in Ireland, like graves, I suppose, which has come to me. In 1928, though, he begins the work, and note, ten years after the end of the war, Um, in parenthesis, which he describes as a lot of illustrations with long captions. And it's notable because during its composition, his career as an artist begins to flourish and he uh, becomes one of the disciples, as it's often called, of Eric Gill, uh, and works very extensively on his his arts and craft skills and so on. Um, He does write else, the Anathemata in 1952, and his collection of essays in Epoch and Artists. But I mentioned manuscripts at the beginning, so let's just see something which I think is interesting. So this is a manuscript by Jones, uh, 1937, I think it dates from. Now, here is something which we may, you may want to hold in your mind for when we hear about Edmund Blunden tomorrow. He is working through in meticulous detail what he went through in the Metz Wood. This is, what, nearly 20 years after, over 20 years after the battle. He's drawn out the exact movements, the trenches, the distance, the objectives that they were trying to take all the way through in that battle with notes, etc. He was a poet that comes back to the war and could relive the war in vivid detail because of what he had observed. But let us say a bit about in parenthesis. It's the longest poem, I would say, that emerged from the war in that sense. 40,000 words long. I haven't counted them, but I'll take someone's word for it. Uh, he said it is not a war book. It is concerned with war. And it comes in seven parts, and it is in one volume, so I do urge you, obviously, to get hold of this. Um, what I've put up there are the opening nine lines of In Parenthesis. Uh, I'll just read them out, because they're, they're quite short. 49 Wyatt, 01549 Wyatt, coming, Sergeant. Pick him up, pick him up, I'll stalk within your chamber. Private Leg, sick. Private Ball, absent. 01 ball, 01 ball, ball of number one, where's ball? 25201 ball, you corporal, ball of your section. Movement round and about the commanding officer. Now, I want to spend the next three hours discussing those nine lines because <laughs> with David Jones, and I kid you not, you probably could. Um, let us start, just the, it's obviously, you, you've got to start with the literal, this is a parade ground, they're, they're calling the roll, uh, ball isn't there. But notice how there is sort of very direct speech, but it's not indicated just when you're reading it. You have to know that this is direct speech. Yet we move into that next bit without a verb, movement round and about the commanding officer. Um, And indeed, this is what you will see throughout. Impressionistic, compression, ellipsis, unorthodox punctuation, great uh, detail in terms of like typography and so on. But there's a lot of things going on in in this... um, 
this section. I'll just pull open to my page of my heavily scribbled, annotated notes. First of all, I'll stalk within your chamber. Not the sort of thing you would expect a sergeant major to say to you. So why does he put it in? Well, the clue is in the first line. I'll stalk within your chamber is a line from They Flee From Me, a poem. They flee from me that sometime did we serve, sorry, seek, with naked foot stalking within my chamber. Who wrote that? Sir Thomas Wyatt. When did he write it? 1549, as you can see in the first line. John Ball. Who's John Ball? Well, he's one of the uh, Lollard priests as part of the Peasants' Revolt and was executed in 1381. And so on. This is the first part. Part one. It begins, the many men so beautiful. That's the line that opens it. A nice epitaph, or a nice uh, opening, if you know. But then you know it's from Coleridge's Ancient Mariner, and they all dead did lie. So when you start to pick these up, you can begin to see how deep you can go into this poem. Uh, that is followed, by the way, of men marched, they kept equal step. Men marched, they had been nurtured together. Because in this first part, it's the bringing together of the troops and then marching off to embark for France. However, if you look at those lines, you then realise that they're actually from a 6th century Welsh poem called E. Gododdin, about uh, by Aniron, which is about the march of the Gododdin to their doom. And then you start to piece it together. This, I thought, was quite interesting, bearing in mind we saw Gurney's, I think it was Gurney's poem, yes, The Retreat, about how he was, he was shot and injured. Well, that, perhaps, it was, I thought it was a wonderful poem. This is a different way. This is in part seven, the attack on Mehmet's wood when John Ball or uh, David Jones gets shot. And what he's trying to describe here is the experience of going through the wood and then the machine guns open up on you. He, the German machine gun, finds you everywhere where his fiery sickle garners you, the reaping of the dead. And then this is an extraordinary passage. Fanged flash and dark fire thring, I should point out this is exactly how it is in the text, and thrung athwart the drill, a whimshurst pandemonium drill with dynamo drub staccato, bark at you like Bertha crops terrier bitch, and rattlesnakes for bare legs. Sweat you on the sudden like Masher Blimp's backfiring number three model for Granny Bodger at 1.30am. Rattle the chatter, you like a vitus neurotic, harrow your vertebrae, bore your brain pan before you can save Fanny, and comfortably over open sights, the gentleman must be mowed. An extraordinary sort of flashing of imagery and ideas there, and you're reaching for your, your encyclopedias to try and work out what on earth these references are, and some of you aren't fine, but Wimshurst Pandemonium, for example, was an electrostatic generator that sparked, and he's throwing all these images in, into this particularly, I think, uh, lovely passage. Again, I'll just show you a bit about manuscripts. Uh, this, is a, this is when they're waiting to go over the top. A wonderful seven minutes to go and 70 times, seven times to the minute, the drumming of the diaphragm, that tension as you wait to go over the top. And here is the manuscript, but you can see Jones making... He's absolutely key as to where there should be a line break. He's putting those in, those pauses and breaths, so he's working on that. Again, if you go to the manuscripts, you see the artist at work. And he says in the preface, I frequently rely on a pause at the end of a line to aid the sense and form. A new line which the typography would not otherwise demand is used to indicate some change, inflection or emphasis. This is not standard meter, this is not standard standard formatting by any stretch of the imagination. Now, I already mentioned that the opening part one, we get a reference to uh, E. Godothin, and uh, what you find, and what Paul Fussell found objectionable, 
within parenthesis was this idea of embedding throughout the poem, and indeed it is throughout there, uh, these ancient texts, these ancient myths and legend, which ties in because he was heavily influenced by Eliot and Joyce. Eliot, of course, if you don't know, writes the preface to in parenthesis and said it was a work of genius. And the mythical method, which you can go away and read about, but basically using myth or legend to try and establish some sort of ongoing uh, narrative with a modern piece of text to the old piece of text, and texts like Ulysses and the Wasteland uh, and Yeats's poetry, etc. Uh, I'll provide that. And if you go through IP or in parenthesis, um, you will find many of these. Inirin's Egodothin, as I already mentioned, the Mabinogian, which we've talked about, the Battle of Malden, an old English poem, Mallory's The Mordarthur, even into the fant- fantasy of Lewis Carroll. And you really are reading through it. Jones does provide you with notes, but they're nowhere near what you need to understand this text. But it is an extraordinary piece of work. I just wanted to finish by reading to you from the preface. He dedicates the book, which I think is important because, again, it picks up on something else. This writing is for my friends in mind of all common and hidden men and of the secret princes into the memory of those with me in the covert and in the open from the black wall, the broadway, the causeway, etc., etc. But he dedicates it to the bearded infantry exchange their long lows with us at a sector's barrier. That small bit of detail he just takes away from the war where when they were obviously passing some troops coming out, and they just gave them some bread. But more importantly, because we pick up an earlier point, and to the enemy front fighters who shared our pains, against whom we found ourselves by misadventure. He opens it again with a, uh, an extract, this time from the Mabinogian. Evil betide me if I do not open the door to know if that is true, which is said concerning it. So he opened the door. And when they had looked, they were conscious of all the evils that they had ever sustained, and of all the friends and companions they had lost, and of all the misery that had befallen them, as if all had happened in that very spot, and because of their perturbation, they could not rest. The last thing to say, and of course there could be lectures and lectures on it, is the title, in parenthesis. He actually tries to explain this. I've written it in a mind of space between, I don't know between quite what, but as you turn aside to do something new, and because for us amateur soldiers, which he sees himself very much as, the war itself was a parenthesis, How glad we thought we were to step outside its brackets at the end of 18, and also because our curious type of existence here is altogether in parenthesis. And I think I just finish with a quote from Charles, who gave it, thank you very much for giving me this. You were noting in the various poems when we saw the text in parenthesis, and you said, what's marginal in parenthesis is laden with the most meaning. And I think that nicely sums up the text. A follow-up, I would just recommend you do go away and read it. Maybe start with Adrian Poole's chapter and work backwards if you want to take John Silken. But it is an experience you will never regret. Thank you.